Standard Issue for all women. Hey, hello and hi there. Welcome to this week's Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and once, while queuing for the toilet, Eddie Large stood on my foot. I'm joined by... I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I'm covered in cat hair. And I'm Jen Offord and I once sat on a baby elephant. Later on, Dottie Winters gives us some key tips on how to multitask like a champ. Aoife Moore talks the DUP, politics in Northern Ireland and what it all means for women. And I chat to comedian Carrie Ad Lloyd about Jane Austen. Our Sarah will be answering another of your life questions. And I do Disney's Snow White. <sighs> but first, tits, pig fuckers and magic beans. It's time for The Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, the point in the show where we tickle the rancid underbelly of the news until it either starts purring or hooks up a furball in our face. Step aside fake news and alternative facts, emotional truth is the new watchword. That's according to Sir John Chilcott, author of the Chilcott Inquiry Report, which took longer to arrive than the last Game of Thrones book and arguably has more tits in it. Sir John found a new way to say liar as he spoke publicly for the first time since releasing his report into the events that led to the Iraq War. Ah yes, in the latest episode of The Pope Shits in the Wood, it transpires our reasons for going to war with Iraq might not have been just about those WMDs that we never managed to find. That's right, according to Sir John, Tony Blair's rhetoric about the war might not have been straight up. But it wasn't all bad since our tone's decisions were based on beliefs rather than facts at least, which is good news for me because I genuinely believe Thierry Henry doesn't mind it when I stand outside his house at night. Former Prime Minister David Cameron denounced calls to end austerity and give public sector workers a pay rise, branding it selfish. And he's the man who risked the country's future on a Brexit referendum in order to appease his own backbenchers. So if anyone has a grasp on selfish, it's him. His logic, if indeed there was any, was that using money to give nurses a pay rise now might impact on cash we have to spend in the future, in the same way that using water to put out a fire in a hospital might mean there's less to splash on his lawn during the next heatwave. Spammerin's call to keep stuffing the piggy bank today in case of a greater need tomorrow was one, a paid gig for the shiny meat-faced twat, and two, followed shameful scenes in the House of Commons, where Tories cheered the defeat of Labour's attempt to force the government to lift the pay cap on public sector wages, even as Grenfell Tower still smoulders. Meanwhile, People's Princess Jeremy Corbyn was heckled while making a speech at the Durham Miners Gala to a crowd of 200,000. In footage that emerged, a woman could be heard demanding to know of Big Jez, ''Are you on my side?'' He's on everyone's side, love, haven't you heard? Talking of Labour, the party's female MPs are forming a parliamentary bloc to use their strength in the Commons in order to improve the lives of women by pushing certain policies through Parliament. Policy areas the bloc is targeting include heavy scrutiny of the Tories' promised domestic violence bill and pushing for increased representation, particularly in local government. Chaired by the excellently chopsy Jess Phillips, the Women's Parliamentary Labour Party's headcount of 119 pisses all over the other blocks in Westminster, including the DUP's measly 10. The World Health Organisation has warned that a super strain of gonorrhea could be about to sweep the globe. The virus is aggressive, focused on the genitals and seemingly resistant to any shit science can throw at it. Speaking of which, Donald Trump was in Europe doing what he does best, addressing a right-wing horde, having his hand rejected by a first lady and tweeting like a mad bastard. Yes, the undisputed president of America finally met his opposite number, Donald J. Trump, with a handshake that brought all the media to their yard. 
Looking like a chat show about men who are afraid of ageing, they laugh together about a free press because there's nothing as funny as the death of Russian journalists. Trump purchased some magic beans from Putin, who said that Russia absolutely did not meddle in the US election before selling them on to Theresa May by offering Britain a very, very huge deal very, very quickly. Tick-tock, tick-tock. Like Captain Hook can always hear the crocodiles approaching Peter Pan, women have long been attuned, or at least told to listen out for, the biological clock that means the end of baby-making time is nigh. Meanwhile, blokes deep into their dotage get to be, well, Peter Pan, prancing about like they're evergreen and spunking out kids until they drop dead, presumably from being just too damn fertile. Oh, hello, new study led by scientist Laura Dodge. What's that? A couple's chances of having a baby fall with the man's age? To the point that it can have a substantial impact on their ability to start a family? Yep, in a process that relies on the chromosomes of two separate people smushing together to form a new one, apparently the health of both parties is equally important. Who'd have thought it? Tick-tock, motherfuckers! Speaking of spunk, as statues of controversial figures like Cecil Rhodes and Robert E. Lee continue to inspire debate on both sides of the Atlantic, the government's plans to celebrate its seemingly never-ending austerity policy by spunking a load of money on a statue of Margaret Thatcher have also run into trouble. Concerns that the Thatcher family aren't happy with the plans and that people might spunk a load of something, indeed anything, else on the Iron Lady have caused it to be delayed, which is a relief because while there's a chronic shortage of statues of women in this country, getting one of Thatcher is rather like offering a thirsty woman seawater, or arsenic, or Dr Pepper. I quite like Dr Pepper. I bet you like Margaret Thatcher. That is the meanest thing anyone has ever said to me. ITV's Love Island hit the headlines all week and then some, and not just for an impromptu grime battle between contestants Chris and Kem. Act like a waste man, that's not Kem. Sexy girl, that's not Kem. Which is ironic, since we thought that was the whole point of Love Island. No, despite a number of X-rated incidents between contestants, it emerged this week that in fact it was the show's portrayal of smoking that had attracted over half the complaints received by Ofcom. Another one of the complaints was about the aggressive treatment of a cushion by one of the contestants. Can I just say, I literally don't know what any of those words you just said meant, but I fully support gratuitous smoking. Also this week, Faber unveiled the cover for The Letters of Sylvia Plath, Volume 1. Plath, a writer renowned for her nudge-wink, happy-go-lucky scribings about romping on the beach and generally having a lovely time, is pictured in a two-piece bathing suit, so readers know exactly what they're getting. I'm very much looking forward to Faber's forthcoming The Best of W.B. Yeats, with the Irish wordsmith posing coyly in a mankini, and a complete works of Shakespeare with old Billy Wagglestaff reclining on a bearskin rug in nothing but an elephant banana hammock. And in other news, it was rumoured this week that party game Cards Against Humanity is releasing a Disney special. The game encourages friends to harness their inner Jeremy Clarkson and senselessly offend one another, unlike Disney films which mainly focus on offending women. Eagle-eyed social media users posted what they claimed were screen grabs from the Cards Against Humanity Facebook site showing cards featuring Disney-based statements for prospective players to fill in the blanks. Thanks to Disney, one mused, I have unrealistic expectations about... Dot, dot, dot. Well, that could be almost anything, from how appropriate glass is as a material for footwear to how long it will take your hostage to fall in love with you. Tell as old as time, mate. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that part of the week where we noodle around the media and find out what crazy-ass shit they're saying about women. 
It's been left to the usually excellent Teen Vogue to let me know that, as a woman, I don't have a prostate and my clitoris is so unimportant it's not even made the diagram. While it makes me think a few blokes from my sexual history are clearly avid Teen Vogue fans, it does seem I've been confused about my cave of wonders for a number of years. But, you know, every day's a school day and all that. When it comes to your body, it's important that you have the facts, says the magazine, before omitting some key facts about women's anatomy. The article is jam-packed full of such sexy talk as hoopla and anchors away and the claim that having something in your rectal area is unique. Have these people never had a poo? Personally, I'm particularly taken with the line it's often described as a feeling of fullness which can be delightful. Because, of course, we are just empty vessels to be filled by a penis. And if you fancy trying consensual anal sex, then absolutely crack on. But there's something a little bit coercive feeling about this article. What's more, Teen Vogue's target audience tends not to have prostates, by tint of being teenage girls. By trying to be all-inclusive, the magazine has massively missed the mark, and possibly ensured its readers do too, specifically by failing to mention the clitoris, the most reliable mark to hit when making sexy fun times with a woman. It was also initially lacking a reminder that safe sex, particularly safe anal sex, is essential, and the article has since had to be updated. Standard Issue for all women. My name's Aoife Murr, and I'm here to introduce you to the women's rights nightmare that is the DUP Tory coalition. For those not in the know, current Prime Minister and Wheatfield terroriser Theresa May couldn't quite get it up for the British public in the general election on June 8th and fell short of a majority government. With all the strong and stable leadership of Jim Davidson at Gay Pride, Theresa began the hunt for someone who could back up her government and unfortunately came home to roost at the door of Stormont. For those lucky enough to have not encountered the DUP, I'll provide a brief history. The DUP was formed by the infamous Ian Paisley in 1971 as a right-wing Protestant party in Northern Ireland. Not only have they been linked to paramilitary organisations such as the UDA, they are so right-wing that when Enoch Powell descended on the slippery slope to fascism, he left the Tories and moved to Northern Ireland, where a DUP MP served as his campaign manager. Geoffrey Donaldson, a current MP who serves as Poyle's advisor, called Poyle one of the greatest names in unionism. Nowadays they have 10 MPs, only one of which is a woman, and are the UK's fifth largest party. Known for such hits as the world was created in 4000 BC, climate change doesn't exist, women cannot be trusted to make decisions on their own body, and gay people are sick paedophiles who can be converted and should not be allowed to marry. Their leader is Arlene Foster, a former solicitor who reveres Margaret Thatcher and believes gay people are trying to redefine marriage, but ironically doesn't believe that her own party are trying to redefine the message of the Bible. So to get a real feel of who Arlene Foster is, after the Scottish government passed marriage equality, Arlene wrote to them, asking them to prevent Northern Irish gay couples from marrying. Nice. So now we're all caught up, let's hop back to the £1.5 billion elephant in the room. Theresa May, desperate for someone to prop up her government, has offered the DUP £1.5 billion in a confidence and supply arrangement. So basically, when Theresa May needs help cutting wages for firemen or nurses, the 10 brave men and women of the DUP will be there, backing her up, like when they did exactly that on June the 29th. So at first glance, you could be forgiven for viewing this coalition as a momentous occasion for women in politics. Two strong female leaders are negotiating on behalf of party and country. 
However, on closer inspection, this deal is good for women in the way that Thatcher was good for the minors or Fox News is good for journalism. So let's kick this off with abortion, Ireland's current favourite hot potato. The DUP has consistently opposed the extension of the 1967 Abortion Act to Northern Ireland, which forces women to cross the Irish Sea for a termination. And they do so in droves. It's estimated that somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 women make the journey across the sea every year. And once these women have undertaken the distressing and sometimes expensive trip, they have, until Stella Creasy's latest amendment to the Queen's speech last month, had to pay for the abortion themselves. So for those who can't afford the flights, they risk prosecution for buying abortion pills. And just to put that into perspective... Last year, a Belfast Muller was put on trial for procuring the drugs to terminate her daughter's pregnancy. This is what the DUP's hardline anti-choice means in real terms. Whatever way you spin it, the result is forced pregnancy. Now, it's unlikely that women in mainland Britain will be subject to these conditions. However, it doesn't mean that it shouldn't be on your mind the next time Theresa May needs a favour. When one woman is oppressed, it opens the door and it sends a message. The Tories now boast that as the only party that have had two female leaders, they're more progressive than, say, Labour. Realistically, no matter how many feminist t-shirts she dons, Theresa May does very little to help other women in politics, and Arlene Foster does, if possible, less. Indulging in her own weird brand of anti-feminism, Arlene tears down her female opponents over their appearance and then cries sexism when she's criticised herself. When asked recently about Sinn Féin's leader... In the north, Michelle O'Neill. Arlene replied, blonde. So there we have it. Arlene Foster, the first minister of Northern Ireland, musters the same amount of dignified and intellectual response on her political opponent as a drunk punter in a Willerspoons harassing a barmaid. Last year, when she was caught up in her own massive scandal in which a RHI scheme pissed away half a billion pounds of Northern Ireland taxpayers' money, Arlene claimed that the just and accurate criticism of her leadership was due to sexism. Arlene, however, has had very little to say about sexism when members of her own party made mooing noises at a woman during a debate in the Northern Ireland Assembly. Sexism is rife in politics, and using sexism as an excuse when you don't like being held to account makes life incredibly difficult for all women. So to wrap up, the DUP's homophobic, flat-earth, anti-choice rhetoric may not affect the rest of the women in the UK immediately. But any government that's beholden to the DUP represents a huge step backwards and general disregard for women and their rights. Theresa May paid £1.5 billion to hold on to power and in doing so has done a huge disservice to the women and LGBT people of Northern Ireland who are allegedly citizens of the United Kingdom. I am here with ostentatious experts... (laughs) Uh, Carrie Ad Lloyd. Ostentatious expert or ostentatious oh, expert? <laughs> I really am an ostentatious expert. I was like, is that what you wanted? She's actually, well, she is actually an ostentatious expert, but she is, we're going to be talking about uh, Jane, Jane Austen. Jane Austen. Who we are, I don't think we're celebrating the 200th year anniversary of her death. No, sort of commemorating it. Commemorating it. Paying tribute to. Yeah. My daughter is shouting in the background. Yeah, you can hear Cariad's. You can hear Cariad's daughter because yeah. we're in a kitchen at the yeah. moment. The other week you could hear Peggy Hannah's cat. So you know, it's what difference does it make, really? <laughs> so to Sledgy, who that's what I call Jennifer Offord. Cats and babies are the same thing. No, <laughs> well, to some people, yeah, they, no, they sort are. Of are. Yeah, yeah. But also, 
CK, that's what I call Carrie Ann Lloyd, um, <laughs> is allergic to cats. Severely, and, yeah. And hopefully not her own child. Mm. No? Not so far, yeah, hopefully. That's good. That's I once thought I was allergic to my husband. Carrie Ann Lloyd here, uh, my friend Carrie Ann is. And that's a, a genuine, you are my friend. She, that is true, like, we're not making it up. We used to live together at university. She saw me fall over once in a dressing gown outside. <laughs> once? Many times. While chasing a boy with a Ghostbusters CD. <laughs> anyway. So, Carrie Lloyd, yeah. she's an actor. She's an actor, comedian, and improviser. Ooh, what's an improviser, I hear you ask? Well, an improviser is someone who performs... Well, there's, improv- there's lots of improvisers, lots of different types, but I perform improvised comedy uh, in a show called Ostentatious, which is Improvised Jane Austen. So we take a title from the audience and then we perform an hour's, normally an hour's play in the style of Jane Austen based on the audience suggestion. So in the style of Jane Austen, so if I were conducting this interview in a (laughs) sort of appropriate fashion, would I be saying something along the lines of, Dear Lady Carriad, thank Uh, you for doing this podcast. Firstly, they never call each other first names unless you were a family, which is really, we always forget that. So you'd have to be calling me uh, Ms Lloyd. Well, Ms didn't exist, so I'd probably be Miss Ms Lloyd. Even but you're married. Point. I'm married. You'd have been like, well, you, actually, we were friends, so you would have been, my dear Carriad. My dear Carriad, it's an absolute a wonder and joy and pleasure to be on your podcast. Or something like that. Okay. She's really screaming. She is, she's having a word, she's isn't a she? Word, yeah, she's learned to shout. It's all right, her husband's with her. We haven't <laughs> just left her in the other yeah, room. Yeah, I put her in with the cat food. Yeah. I think she'll be all right. <laughs> she's literally... There's just cats all over her at the minute. She's allergic, she doesn't have any, I've already told you. Carriad's baby is is not covered in cats at the moment, (laughs) just to be clear on that. So in July, it is the 200th anniversary of Jane Austen's death. Yeah, they are celebrating. So first of all, uh, because you are a bit of an expert, what do you think is the fascination with Jane Austen? So yeah, she still remains incredibly popular. Uh, especially in America, we get asked ostentatiously. Really? Yeah, oh my god, they effing love Jane Austen. Like, they have. Is that because they think she's like the queen? No, I sort think of, they it's just. a bit all like royal and shit. I think it's. No, it's like. it's a Because it's the same reason English people are like, there's a real world. So it's like, there's a real world of Jane Austen, you know, of bonnets and top hats and swooning and dances and jigs and proposals. And I think if you're American, it seems extremely English, doesn't it? It seems like yeah. the. It's a bit like if you love Shakespeare, you know, Shakespeare's work. It's like a very clear, distinct, you can picture it. Which is what ostentatious do. We just, you know, dip into the world for an hour. So I think she's so popular because she's a really good writer. And I think that's often, that's often left to the side sometimes. Because mm. people talk about the adaptations or about her. But genuinely, Pride and Prejudice is genuinely still a funny book. Like, it still stands up, you know, 200 years later as making me along. It is funny though, isn't it? Because I remember I read it. I tried to read it when I was about fourteen. Oh, I was a bit yeah. like, "What's this shit?" <laughs> I, I'm literally like, "What is this what shit?" Is this shit mate? What have given me this for, Mum? But reading it again as an adult, it oh. is actually really funny. It's really funny, and I think it's not. That's the thing. It's not a book for fourteen-year-olds. It's a book for, you know, she wrote it oh, whenever you know she's in her twenties, thirties. Like it's designed for an older woman who understands how fucking irritating men can be and love can be and relationships and female friendships and yeah. sisterhood and yeah and just I think it's a bit like when I watched um the first time I watched Some Like It Hot yeah I was pissing myself laughing and I couldn't believe I was like oh my god this film is so old 
these jokes are so funny. Yeah. They still stand up. It's not like when you watch some stuff, you're like, oh, yeah, I guess that was funny in the 40s, guys. Yeah. And I think Jane Austen's the same. That book is... The characters are brilliant. The plot's really gripping. And the writer... She's just a really good writer. And persuasion as well. Like, I think I always say to people... Start PMP. PMP's your gateway, Austin, because it's yeah. just a damn good read. But then you hit the other ones, and I think Persuasion, which is her last fully published book, yeah. completed, is so bleak and sad and full of loss and longing, and mm. you know, so it's a bit like it's a bit like the Beatles. You know, you start with Lummy Doo, yeah, and you go right through, and you end up, you know, this side of the pepper and revolver, and you end up the white album thinking oh man I've grown up with these people and that's the same with Jane you can start at like the fresh fun bit and then you end up with persuasion you're like Jesus life is hard what would you say to an Austin sceptic yeah to an Austin sceptic I would just say genuinely just give it a try um, P&P is not long yeah and I think also again that she gets shoved over into like chick lit because mm. it's a, because it's about romance and because it's about women and it's about female in, female interactions, so people demean it as like yeah. oh it's just romance and you go it's bloody hard to write good romance as anyone who watches mm. romantic comedies will tell you or any drama that involves a love story, and that love story between Lizzie and Darcy is really compelling and you know Lizzie is a completely flawed character she's an idiot she judges him incorrectly you know he, as much as an idiot as he is and. Who, you know, like us all, we're all idiots just trying to make our way. So to an Austin sceptic, I would say just genuinely pick it up. Mm. If you can't, P&B, 1995, Colin Firth, BBC, for me, is the greatest adaptation of a book. Oh, it is fucking funny, isn't oh, it? Oh, it's so funny. It's so good. Colin Firth's quite hot in it as well. Um, oh, he's so hot in it. Yeah, which I... And Mr. Collins. Oh, that, I mean, that Mr. Collins, I've seen it, I've seen it done on, on different adaptations and, you know, plays and stuff. I think his... David Bamber. Honestly, I think everyone in that production plays that character. Alison Deadman's amazing. Yeah. Jennifer Ely's amazing. Yeah. Um, oh, God, who's Lucy Bryars, who plays Mary's really funny. They've got Julius Wahala knocking up the... Like, just everybody in it is amazing. It's it is, so good. It is very good. It's on Netflix, by the way. It is on um, Netflix, so much can, to my delight. You can watch it. Yeah. Because I did. <laughs> I think you've already answered this, to be fair, but do you think that she's still relevant now, and, and why do you think that is? I definitely think she is, because I think we're still having relationships, we're still living in a world that, as we're always saying, Sledgy, fucking smash the patriarchy. You know, she Quite. lived in an even more patriarchal society. Yeah. So I think, although although you're a modern mm. Western woman, you might not identify with being, you know, arranged marriage, but I think there's plenty of people who would identify yeah. with that. And I think she's dealing with the fundamental human subjects of love, loss, and just trying to live your best life. I don't know, she's a bit of a revolutionary, really, yeah, isn't she? Like, yeah. she was... Was she more, sort of, posthumously famous? No, definitely more posthumously... Well, she she was successful in some ways, but not really. But the first one was published without a name, and it did really well. I think that's... Without her name? Yeah, so it, just, yeah. it was anonymous. So it could have been a man. Yeah, and I think yeah. it was either Mansfield Park or Northland Abbey that did really well. And then she signed this dodgy contract that, for Sense and Sensibility and Pride and Prejudice, I think it was, she would get, and this might be wrong, but she would get, you know, money based on the book sales and they didn't do as well. Yeah. So she died, not not to a very wealthy woman, not married, you know, in... Like... I did not know that either. Oh, mate, she was engaged and broke it off. 
Why? Yeah. Um, well, if you read Persuasion, that's mm. what everyone says, that she basically was in... She was in love with this guy when she mm. was younger, and everyone thought they were going to get married, but he was really rich, and so the family said, you can't marry her. And that seems to be, if you read into it, what affected everything. And then so she got engaged to, like, a bloke who she sort of knew, mm. and she wrote to her sister, like, oh, he's perfectly fine. And she got engaged, and then the next morning It'll it was do. like... Yeah, the next morning was like, mm, what am I doing? And she yeah. wanted, she wants, you know, she's like her character. She wanted to marry for love, and she didn't find anyone. And she was, her brothers married really well, and she was extremely, you know, reliant on hmm. relatives. She had no cash for herself. Obviously, she wasn't married, and so yeah, she had a, it. Was a tough old time in, you know, nineteenth century for Jane. Yeah. It wasn't exactly fun. She was completely reliant on male relatives, yeah. and. You know, her brother's... Yeah, one brother was a bit shit, I think, and had married really well, but, like, she was allowed to stay with him as a governess to, like, some of the, the wife's children yeah. and stuff. So, yeah, she had some very close... Although the other thing that's recently been discovered is, was she a lesbian? Because she had this extremely close friendship with this woman who they wrote lots of letters. I mean, obviously, you can't say she was a lesbian because that's an anachronistic term that is from our time that's yeah. placed on her. It's, it doesn't really make sense. But she had a female love interest. Yeah, there was definitely someone she was extremely close to who the family got rid of the letters. Oh. Who was, I think... Well, I, then how do we know? Um, because some of the letters have survived. So some of the letters have resurfaced recently. This woman called Anne, who I think was a governess or, mm. or a friend of someone. And they were very, very close. Mm. And this woman read her books and helped mm. shape them, did like edits on them. And again, it's like a woman was helping write books for mm. another woman. So even that. Obviously, it's brushed under the carpet, and because you know, you think she's pre-Victorian, yeah. So she's a, you know, for all the freedom. Even when you look at costumes that time, you know, there was a lot of there was a lot of freedom, yeah. And Georgian society was very scandalous, and they loved it. People, yeah, you know, they were having sex with people, they were making jokes about it, which is Victorian England is the reaction to that, yeah. So she's about to hit the time where no one wants to celebrate a female writer who's yeah. writing about women. It's like, pfft, no, thank you. We want moralistic you know, mm. the heavy tales of what's happening. Yeah, because they do, I mean, I, I haven't read that, but they do like a party, don't they, in Pride and Prejudice? I love a party. They are mad keen on the a dance, innit? Yeah, yeah, a real, yeah. a quadrille, for a real. Oh, mm. <laughs> Those types of dance. Mm. <laughs> oh, you have to study hardcore 18th, 19th century dancing when you do a show based on Jane Austen. <laughs> do you do a lot of dancing? Well, I've seen you twice. Oh, have you? Don't fucking dance for me. <laughs> We don't do enough dance. It's quite hard to improvise a dance, and also the boys, the boys often just do their own thing. Like we're yeah. trying to make them do that, like nice back and forward, and the boys are just walking off. And you're like, we often do slightly what I might describe as like club grime dancing. Grime dancing, <laughs> so know. sort of like Austin-y Skepta kind of yeah vibe. Sure. I don't know the words you just said, but sure. You don't. Who's Skepta? He's a grime artist. I, like, I like grime. Do you have a favourite Jane Austen character? I I have a real soft spot for Lizzie Bennet, just because I think she's... Obviously. Obs, it's obvious, but she she's... She's like your quintessential... She's your, your ultimate Austen female character in that, you know, she's witty, she's earnest, she's funny... She, and, and it's not she's not having to be witty like isn't that they you know she doesn't sell it like oh she's plain so she's witty it's mm. like she's she's pretty but you know she's fiery she's got personality 
I love Lizzie Bennett, but I do also have a massive soft spot for Mrs. Bennett because I just think she's hilarious. She's a, like in terms of comedy characters, mm. she's fucking hilarious. Oh, Mr. Collins. Oh, Mr. Collins is, um, but he's so slimy that I've never. He's not my fave. I couldn't choose him as a fave. I know, so gross, so I gross. And what like amazing Words. character observation, like the way she writes him. You know exactly yeah. that kind of guy. You've met that man now. You know yeah. that obsequious, creepy, career climbing. Like, we've all met someone and we were like, oh, what a toad. I also really like um, Marianne in Sense Sensibility, just because she's so stupid and silly. And, Is and that the one who Kate Winslet plays that's in Kate the Winslet. film? Yeah, yeah. She stays out too long and she gets a yeah. fucking cold. Yeah. They all do that though, don't they? There's a lot. happen a lot. In I'm a not going to deny. There's a lot of. Well, no, Jane, um, Jane goes to see Bingley and gets ill, and then Lizzie walks there. And that's right. shocking because she walks through the mud yeah. and turns up with red cheeks and then they're worried she's going to catch a chill because she yeah. walked and she's like, bitch need to see my sister, so yeah. I walked, what? Ooh. But for a lady yeah. to turn up flushed, it means you didn't have enough money for a carriage. That's what you're saying. Okay. I don't have a carriage, I had to walk. Yeah. Whereas what, and this was interesting is, Lizzie's so cool because Lizzie's like, well I don't care, my sister's ill, what does it matter? Yeah. And then the Bingley sisters are like, you should be ashamed. Like we, if that was they're a, proper twats, though, yeah, aren't they? Twats. They're proper twats. They're really, but again, they have such a great comeuppance. Like it's so yeah. great. It's yes. so great. Well, it's a cool girl. Sorry. Sorry. But they do get their comeuppance. They totally get their comeuppance. And that's what we like to see. It's Isn't satisfying. It? It's really satisfying. Really kind oh, it's so satisfying. If she's your favourite character, I've, I think I'll probably know on the basis of what has been said already. But what is your favourite book? Yeah, I think. I have to say P&P, even though it's such a cliche, but it was the first one I read. And I do like the others, but I think P&P is just like a real perfect novel. Like, all the others have something slightly more, like, sense of sensibility is a bit quieter in a way. And, like, Emma's a bit more, like, just, you know, one character. Whereas P&P has just got this amazing array of characters. You care about all of them. It's really funny. And at the end they get together. It's like, whoop, that's perfect. <laughs> it's like such Fish, a... Bosh, bosh. Yeah, it's so neat. It's so neat. Persuasion, I think, is good, but I didn't... Persuasion's like a book where you're like, oh, this is a good book. You're not like, oh, what will happen next? You're like, oh my God, wow. What will happen, what's going to happen next? This is sad. I haven't read it. It's really short. It's surprisingly short. But it's really good. It's really good. It's really like a very... And you can tell it's a woman writing much older who hasn't loved the way she wanted to love. And it's full of sadness. Again, it's about this woman that was engaged to a guy, I think, if I can remember. She was engaged to him, she wasn't allowed to marry him. And then they meet much later and they're much older. And it's like basically this horrific underlying sexual tension and love and loss and pain between the two of them. And, and yeah, that's Anne, isn't it? Anne, and she's just very sad. But it's but also funny and happy with who she is. Mm. <laughs> Tell me about Ostentatious, Carriad. So, Ostentatious is a show that I do. There's eight of us in the group, but we, we do six people a show. And yeah, it's improvised Jane Austen. Mm -hmm. So, we're in full Regency gear. We have a cellist or a violinist that improvises along with us. You come in, we give you a piece of paper that looks like an old penguin book. Mm -hmm. You write down a title, it can be anything. So, we've had like The Red Car. Um, you know, the nice day, honour and tolerance. Or people sometimes do Jane Austen spoofs. So we've had um, Double O Darcy, Strictly Come Darcy, Fifty Shades of Darcy. Um, a lot of Darcy. A lot of Darcy. Yeah. Uh, Breaking Cad, Meth Comes to Pemberley, which is a sweet title. That's incredible. Pride and Gay Prejudice, uh, Northanger Rabbi, 
we get some amazing, amazing ones. Nobody puts Darcy in the corner. We pick a title and then we just make up a story for an hour, as if you're watching a play, but in the style of Jane Austen, and it's funny. So where can the casting agents of, uh, of the <laughs> next adaptation of Pride and Prejudice, and indeed the listeners of the Standard Issue podcast, come and see your wonderful show, Austin Dear Carriad? An improvised Jane Austen novel. So they can see us at the Edinburgh Festival at the Ardebelli at one thirty every day, mm-hmm. and then we're going on tour. So oh. you can go to our website, ostentatiousimpro.com, and we're touring all over the place, mm-hmm. like oh, from like Dorset to... Newcastle, I think it's all over the shop. Literally everywhere. Literally everywhere. Your heart desires. Um, yeah, and then we're also doing gigs in London at Leicester Square Theatre in the autumn as well. So we normally perform there once a month. But if you follow us on Twitter, look on the website, uh, email us. We're normally performing somewhere, but we've got, I think it's like a 26 date tour in autumn. That's a lot. It's a lot. It's a big one. Are you going to take Ben and all those cats with you? <laughs> Just a crawl over. Probably not. I'll probably leave the cats yeah. here. I mean, I've got room. There are no cats here. I've already told you. Uh, you can follow them on Instagram and on Twitter at Austin Impro. And uh, I, I've been to see them a couple of times. They're very good. I, I recommend it wholeheartedly. Thank you very much, Carrie Ad Lloyd. Thanks very much, Sergi. Question. I'm not answering that. Hello, I'm Sarah Milliken and you're listening to Sarah Milliken's Question Time. Now, I hope you've had a good week. I've had loads of questions this time, so I'm going to rattle off that two. I'm going to do two this week, if that's okay. Uh, The first one is from Chris Ford on Twitter, who asks, If I don't social media my holiday, did it really happen? Now, sadly, the answer to that, Chris, is that no, it didn't happen. Because we just think you're lying if there isn't any sort of evidence. So if you could quickly pop up a snap of you in Speedos or holding an ice cream or with an ice cream in your speedos on your social media then we will know that your tan is not fake thanks another question we've had is from lucy Payne, and this is off our standard issue facebook page and lucy asks uh, how many cats is too many cats now oh, this is up for debate so one answer i heard this is that you should only have the amount of cats as you have laps the same amount so if you have two laps you should have two cats or no more than two cats so that they can all sit on knees and everybody's happy. The problem being that neither of our cats sit on knees. They both just go upstairs and play their tapes like teenagers in Coronation Street. So, um, and in real life, I imagine, but they're the only teenagers I know, the ones on Coronation Street. Um, so in which case we could have an endless amount of cats because I seem to have some weird cat force field around me that they just don't like sitting on my knee. Another answer is we got um, some cat flaps fitted uh, where they recognise the cat and it did say on the packaging and I remember distinctly because I mentioned it to my husband sort of slightly giving him the side eye at the same time because it said that you were allowed up to 19 cats and he said no. <laughs> I tried to buy a guinea pig today and he wouldn't let me. I didn't realise that when you were 42 you still had to ask permission of somebody else before you could buy a guinea pig, but turns out you do when you're a bit of a runaway animal freak like I am. Um, so thanks, Lucy and Chris, for both of your questions. Excellent questions this week, guys. Um, have a lovely week and I shall answer any more questions you have next week. Bye-bye. If you'd like me to answer one of your questions, then tweet us at Standard Issue UK using the hashtag SMQT. Thank you. <laughs> Standard issue for all women.
As George Osborne takes on another job, Standard Issue have asked me, Dottie Winters, woman of many hats, to give him some advice on how to multitask like a boss. After centuries of experience at doing all the things, women are famously good at multitasking. We know this is true because of how often men's rights activists expect us to make them a sandwich whilst also dealing with their fragile little egos. As a Tory, George has been a supporter of zero-hour contracts, although in his case, he is unlikely to settle for the zero-pounds paycheck that can accompany these. Either way, he's got a lot on his plate and I wouldn't want him to mess up, so I'm happy to help George out with some of the tips I've learnt about doing multiple roles. Tip 1. Dress for the job you want. That's why I'm recording this dress in a onesie. If you have lots of different things to do, make like Mr Ben and dress appropriately for each. That way, if you find yourself halfway through an email and can't remember if you were accepting a bribe or demonising the working classes, you can simply look down at your outfit and see what you should be doing. It's a simple code. If you look down and see a spacesuit, you are an astronaut. Private school tie with mayonnaise stains? You're an ex-politician, now on the board of a bank. Yellow fur and a spotty bandana? Congratulations, you're Pudsy the Bear. Shiny brogues splattered with the hope and dreams of the poor? Perhaps you edit the telegraph. Tip 2. Watch old episodes of Quantum Leap. You can learn a lot by watching how Dr Sam Beckett uses subtle cues to work out exactly where he is and what he should be up to each day. For extra points, see if you can secure yourself a holographic advisor or a PA to help you out. Remember, just as with Haribo, so it is with jobs, in that people are impressed by quantity rather than quality. So never limit yourself to only the number of job titles which a normal person could perform competently. Like Hermione with her time-turner, you, Georgie boy, are no mere muggle constrained by billions of years of linear time. The sheer quantity of things you pretend to do is all the evidence that anyone should need that you are a very, very special boy. Sure, you may look like you've overestimated your talent, but mastering incompetence in so many fields is no mean feat. Tip 3. It's important to look busy, even when you aren't, in much the same way as when you're in the House of Commons it's important to look awake even if you aren't. Remember, most people won't know which job you're supposed to be doing at any given moment, so as long as you look busy, they'll assume you're working hard. To this end, always, always carry paper files with you wherever you go. doesn't matter what's in them, just make sure you carry them everywhere. To meetings, on the train, to the supermarket, to the water park. Busy, busy, busy. The papers don't need to be anything in particular, so if you can't find actual documents, you can improvise with old takeaway menus, napkins, spare sanitary towels, an abandoned wasp nest or even a live wasp nest. Reuse and recycle. Tip four. Remember, the key to having lots of jobs is to avoid responsibility, accountability and real work at all times, while mysteriously always being around when credit, kudos or money is being doled out. It is important not to understand too much about what you do, otherwise you might get sucked in. Plus, some jobs are pretty terrifying if you look too closely. Here are some handy delegation phrases to master passing the buck without having to know what you're doing. Can you liaise with Sophie and get back to me with a proposal? Please, can you sort this? Please investigate and revert ASAP. Buy low, sell high. With mayo, not bread, I'm paleo now. Tip 5. You're going to need to get good at napping. You may be the master of delegation, but avoiding real work in multiple roles is an exhausting business. Practice your power naps. Great places for napping include car parks, trains, lengthy meetings, conference calls and nativity plays. The trick to pulling this off successfully is to always have a prepared response 
for that moment when you wake up and realise that everyone is looking at you, awaiting a response. These stock phrases will get you out of almost any such jam. That's all very well, but I think this is more complicated than that. I see what you're saying, but what do we really mean by value? Great work, team. I'm going to reflect on everything I've heard here today and get back to you in a couple of days. Has anybody run this past Barbara? All credible organisations have a Barbara. Final bonus tip. Business cards are a pain if you have multiple jobs, so maybe just try and find one title which sums up everything you do. George, I think in your case you should go for glossy black writing on a matte black background with just the words George Osborne, shadowy establishment figure. Remember, don't include your number, otherwise people might want to talk to you. Cool. I think that's all you need to know, George. Go. Edit a newspaper. Snooze through a board meeting. Jog through the corridors of power. Dance like no one is watching. Multitask your way to the top. Dotty out. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks. It's the weekly roundup of things that are crackalacking in women's sport. And this week is the second week of July, which can mean only one thing in the sporting calendar. That's right, it's the time of year that we pick up our ageing wooden rackets for two weeks and realise why we don't usually bother, because it's really fucking hard. That's right, it's Wimbledon. Strawberries and cream, pims, unimaginably expensive pasties, if you've ever been to Wimbledon, which I have... They're fucking expensive, man. Anyway, jumpers slung jauntily about the shoulders of a man who probably lives in Surbiton and a bit of sexism. It's time to rehash the same old arguments of the years gone by about whether or not women tennis players deserve to earn the same amount of money as their male counterparts. This year, helpfully added to by Mardi-ass John McEnroe. McEnroe chimed in on the debate with some comments about the women's game. For example, that Serena Williams, who's notable by her absence this year because she's she's having a baby, would be uh, of around the same level of ability as whoever is ranked 700th in the world in the men's game. John, mate, you cannot be serious. Okay, so look, McEnroe's got a point in a way. Right, if you take Serena Williams out of the equation, there's no clear frontrunner in the women's game. The top seeds notoriously fall out of the competition early on. There's a complete lack of consistency that we don't see to the same extent in the men's game. But if we're talking about Serena, we are talking about a 23-time Grand Slam champion who pretty much shits all over everyone else. I think what's really disappointing about McEnroe's comments as a one-time elite athlete himself is that the complete flagrant disrespect and disregard that he's shown for the women's game here. So going back to this misconception about the women's game, that it's less exciting, it's just, it's all kinds of bullshit, really. The fact that the women's game is so much more open surely adds to the excitement. Um, And that's before you actually even think about watching the game itself and the excitement of it in that, They're not just all firing aces at each other from the baseline. And it's absolutely, it's even more batshit when you think about some of the games that we've seen so far in this tournament. Like an absolute thriller between Johanna Konta and Donna Vecic in the second round. 
And it's this issue, it's this misconception really that it's less interesting than the men's game that feeds into the self-perpetuating problem that the talent pool can only ever grow if it's given more coverage in the first place, which it can't do while we're being told that it's not interesting and no one wants to watch it because people don't want to invest in it while they think that no one wants to watch it. So that leads us neatly, in fact, onto the women's Euros, which are starting on the 16th of July. So you might have seen some billboards popping up around town with the England women's football team pictured in, I'm going to admit, a slightly odd way. Is it a photo? Is it a painting? Sort of like fan art with the caption Game Changers emblazoned on it. And it's an image that actually makes me feel a bit emotional. So the first game for England uh, versus Scotland is going to be shown on Channel 4 on July the 19th. And Women's football is a huge success story in women's sport and it's one that we've seen increasing coverage of in in recent years. And also, when we're talking about football, about English football particularly, the women's team are actually ranked fifth in the world. So we've only got France and Germany who are above us in terms of European teams and ranking. So it's not like the men's competition and it's something that we actually are in with a feasibly good shot at. And it's also unlike the men's competition on the on an international scale, at least, in that women's teams typically look like they actually want to be there. And they play, I think, personally, with a lot more heart than you see, particularly of the, the England men's team. So it's a huge success story. And uh, I think it's one that we really, really need to get behind. And, and in doing so, will hopefully have a massive impact on, on all of women's sport. Standard issue for all women. Welcome back to Dunleavy Does Disney. Yay! Yay! This week, we're talking Snow White. Yeah, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Is that the full title? I believe so. Right. Oh, it's Um, good that the men get a mention. They tend to get left out. They do. They do. Yeah, I find yeah, that is that is an apprehensive face that I am looking at. I wish you could see it. She looks she looks a little bit scared, even. I know it's because it's two weeks in a row now, in which I am just going to go. Is that a spoiler alert? Uh, That's a spoiler alert. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, Snow White is Disney's first film, so on the one hand, it feels unfair to judge it by any standards which we'd apply today. We're going to though, right? But on the other hand, fuck it. Yeah, yeah. quite. So Snow White is a princess with a wicked stepmother who thinks that she alone... Oh, yeah. Sounds familiar. Quite. The Wicked Stepmother, she thinks that she alone is amazing and she has a mirror that tells her that she's right, which is a bit like what Twitter does for Katie Hopkins. <laughs> um, oh, God. But Snow White's well pretty, you know, and she's so egregiously nice that... She attracts the kind of attention from birds that the rest of us only get if we're eating chips in the street. Yeah. So she's a punishment. She's made to dress in rags and sing at housework, which is literally only happens in Disney films. She's made to sing at the housework. Yeah. Well, maybe I think maybe she chooses to sing at housework. But nonetheless, singing at housework only happens in Disney films or if you've taken a shitload of drugs, I've heard. And that's when you do do your housework in yeah. a ball gown that you just happen to find in the cupboard. <laughs> exactly. We've all done it. We've all been there. Anyway, so just one day she's she's busy singing and washing, and she's singing about how one day the man she loves is going to find her. 
which is kind of weird because she doesn't yet know who he is. And so I'm not entirely sure how that could possibly happen, which is ordinarily the sort of thing that I fixate on and I think about for absolutely ages. Except fuck me, he literally pops up mid-song. Is it Liam Neeson? (laughs) He has a very special set of skills. (laughs) Well, he literally pops up mid-song and starts singing too. Yeah, and well, it's, they sound like a match made in yeah. well, in typical an awful Di- heaven. <laughs> in typical Disney fashion, the heroine imprints on him immediately, like she's a chick that's fallen into a bath <laughs> and thinks that the uh, rubber duck is its mother. And um, I'm going to be honest, a hollow plastic duck isn't a bad analogy for this guy because he's so bland. He also does not have a name. Right. He is just the prince. I think I love it that Disney don't write great women but they didn't really write great men no they they? don't and it's kind of like I say it's kind of offensive because the the idea is that this could literally be anyone the wicked stepmother she sees that Snow White's attracting some attention so she orders this huntsman with Lego hair to go and take Snow White into the forest and kill her and bring back her heart in a box but when it comes to it crikey that took a turn I know but when it comes to it, she's so damn lovely, he just can't do it. Oh, so right. Yeah. So she runs off into the forest to start a new life, talking to wildlife in that voice that people use when they talk to babies, which was so nauseating. I actually had to have a little break from Snow White and drink some whiskey and hit some stuff with a hammer. It's good that you always have that piñata in your bedroom, <laughs> just so you can smack things when you need to. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I needed it this time. Anyway, she's she's going through the forest and she stumbles across this complete shit tip of a house. Right. Oh, so that must be like catnip to her. Well, there you go. And she decides this would be the perfect place to sing at housework. (laughs) Right. So, meanwhile, the owners owners of this cottage are working in a magical mine that seems to produce every conceivable sort of precious stone. Although it's never really made clear why the Seven Dwarfs aren't richer than Roman Abramovich. Because... They kind of should be. Yeah, they could have afforded a cleaner way before Snow White. You would have thought, yeah. So they come home from work and discover Snow White's, like, living in their house in a scene that goes on forever. You are actually still watching it right now. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) I know, really, to call it tedious would be unfair to the words tedious. It's, (laughs) It's terrible. And anyway, she teaches them how to wash, and they teach her how to yodel. And I really start to empathise with Grumpy, who's not having any of it either. But wait, the Wicked Queen finds out that Snow White isn't dead at all, but she's running this B&B for bald miners. So she transforms into an old hag using magic, rather than a shitload of gin and a late night, which is how yeah, the rest of us that, do it. that works for me. Yeah. So she punts off to find Snow White. Punts? Punts, yeah. And credit where credit's due, she's pretty good at punting. Is it uh, set in Cambridge? Uh, no. I don't know where it's set, because there are alligators in the... Uh, in the forest. But... Is it set in Cambridge? <laughs> yeah, quite. I have to say, she is good punting, and I, I say that as someone that, and you know this to be true, that the last time I went punting, I came within an inch of puking on a small Chinese child's head. I can confirm this is true. <laughs> Despite being repeatedly warned by everyone not to let anyone in the house, Snow White lets the old crone in. Women never listen. Yeah. She eats a poisoned apple, and she falls into what Disney calls a sleeping death which is kind of how I felt while I was watching this, to be honest. Then the old crone falls off a cliff, and I really envy her the sweet release that she's had from this film. But Snow White, obviously, you know, she's died. Um, And this goes down in the forest like the death of Princess Diana. Did Um, the birds stop tweeting? Yeah. Did the mice stop clapping? Yeah. Squeaking? Yeah. 
Absolutely that. And the dwarves make the odd decision not to bury her, but to keep her in the house like it's some sort of Bates Motel. Well, they weren't very good at tidying. <laughs> oh, we'll get round to it. After a few months, the prince turns up and kisses the dead body, which isn't weird at all. Perfectly normal Saturday night yeah. where I live in Halifax. And lo and behold, she wakes up. Oh. Yeah. And everyone loses their shit for a bit. And then she says, see ya, and rides off into the sunset because who needs friends? You know, when you've got Prince with a horse. The end. I mean, I can't believe I'm going to ask this question, but I'm going to ask this question. Did you like it? God, no. <laughs> In fact, I go to the forest to say that I hated it, which is a word I usually reserve for, you know, generally terrible things like diseases and UKIP. I do have to say that I do remember liking it when I was a child, Okay. to be fair. But I was excited at anything that was moving in colourful. Well, there you go. Although, like I say, I also liked Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, which is pretty much the same film. Although that does at least have the good grace to have some half-decent songs and a few fistfights in it. What message can we take from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs? That one day our prince will come. End of. Absolutely smashing. What score are we giving Snow White? We're giving it one. One bald minor out of five. Surely out of seven. And it's, it's yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, actually, that's probably more realistic. And it's getting that one because, I mean, it does deserve some credit for being Disney's first animated film. So, and the fact yeah. that the wicked stepmother had the, the goodwill to throw herself off a cliff. Yeah, well, actually, she fell. and she then a rock, fell. And then a rock fell on her. And then a rock fell on yeah. her. They really wanted her dead. Yeah, they did. Crikey. It's and funny because falling, falling is big. For death in early Disney, because you don't have to deal with what happens at the bottom. You just get, ah, as they're just, falling. Do you think just on the Disney cutting room floor, there's just a load of splat? Yeah. And they're just like red paint everywhere. Standard issue for all women. That's all for this week. Thanks for downloading. Next week, our motherhood columnist Daisy Levington is giving us some tips on coping with the school holidays. Rosie Wilby's talking breakups. And I'm chatting to the brilliant Jess Phillips. We're recording at Latitude this weekend with Susan Wacoma and Deborah Francis-White, so if you're there, come see us in the speakeasy tent on Saturday night. A shout-out to Amy McLean, who, bless her socks, spent 12 hours live-streaming on YouTube to raise funds to support us. What an absolute smasher. Thanks, Amy. Our music was composed and recorded by Barry Hilton, all rights reserved. Thanks to David Jung, Mary Young and John Clare for their help with the stings. We have an archive full to brimming with excellent articles over at standardissuemagazine.com and Sarah's got a whole section of her website devoted to us. We also have various In Conversation events coming up. The next one is on July the 18th when we've got Janet Street Porter, Lisa Tarbuck and Ellie Taylor and is hosted by Sarah and Arden Levy. There are loads more of these planned across the country, not just in London, so please keep an eye on our events page, which you'll find at sarahmillican.com forward slash standard hyphen issue. We'd bloody love to hear from you, and you can write to us at mailbag at standardissuemagazine.com. Follow us on Twitter at standardissueuk, or find us on Facebook and Instagram. All of our podcasts are available on iTunes and Podomatic. Stay frosty, champs. If you fancy trying consensual anal sex... (laughs) Hi, Mum! (laughs) That was not directed at my mum. If you fancy... (laughs) If you fancy trying consensual... (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, it sounds like you're offering. (laughs) I read that on a toilet door somewhere. If you fancy fancy trying trying consensual... Call 07956. Jen, Jen, Jen. Jen, Jen, Jen. Right, we're cutting that.